Leo Zagami has spent many decades as a member, leader, teacher, researcher in secret societies. He's had his own radio show. He's been a music producer, an investigative journalist. He has written a nine-volume series of books on his experiences within secret societies called Confessions of an Illuminati. He's written standalone books on Pope Francis and the Invisible Master, and he's here today on ExoPolitics today to tell us about the latest developments concerning secret societies, extraterrestrials, gods, and how that all relates to contemporary political events on our planet. You are listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here is Dr. Michael Sala. Well, welcome, Leo. Great to have you on ExoPolitics Today. You've got quite a background. Uh, I mean, how did you get time to do all of that? You must have started very young. I'm 53 years old, and uh, I come from, uh, I guess, a peculiar family, an uh, aristocratic family. My mother uh, related to the Queen Mother, member of the Lion family, uh, and um, from my father's side instead, uh, member of the Di Gregorio, which is a uh, family from the Sacred Roman Empire of Barons in Sicily. And my grandfather was a Sicilian politician, a senator, of the Italian uh, Republic. Uh, my father was instead a young psychoanalyst who uh, studied uh, and uh, founded uh, also an uh, important organization, a psychoanalytic association called GAPA, and uh, was uh, working with Meyer, who was the direct disciple of Carl Gustav Jung. So he worked for a few years also in Switzerland. And uh, thanks to my own, uh, I guess, uh, background and family experiences, I developed certain interests from a very early age. And uh, later on, uh, I kind of changed as people change during life. And in 2006, I decided to uh, come out of certain environments and to denounce also my involvement because I was uh, uh, threatened and uh, uh, I was threatened with my life. So I didn't really have uh, another chance. I had to expose what I knew before they possibly killed me. And I did it uh, by bringing out in the open names, photos, documents, uh, and this formed then later on the basis of my books because between 2006 and 2009, eight, let's say, nine, eight, I kind of like was able to stay on the internet, but then the attacks was very, very strong. And I wanted to also show the people that my work was a credible work and you can't not really do that uh, on the internet where the attention span is only a page or two. So I wanted to bring out these books. I started to bring them out in 2009 in Japan. Then later on, I brought them out in Italy in 2012, which started to create those some problems for me later on. And uh, then in 2015, I started bringing out my books with Brother Olsen in the English language, uh, uh, thanks to his own publishing company here in California. We hear a lot about secret societies in different places, uh, the United Kingdom, England, the United States, but Italy always seems to kind of figure very high as a centre for the 
Illuminati and you were involved at a direct level with the Illuminati. So, so can you explain, you know, what is the Illuminati and, and how important is Italy for the contemporary Illuminati? The Illuminati basically are the agents of the Jesuits, which have their headquarters in Rome. So Italy is naturally a very important location for uh, this kind of organization. But uh, uh, I was initiated in 1993, thanks to a family friend who was Prince uh, Aliata di Montereale. And uh, he's, uh, he was actually a family friend because he was doing politics with my grandfather. And uh, in the early 20s, when they saw my interest towards certain things, which had already developed from a young age, uh, they uh, introduced me to, to this gentleman, which you can find on the internet. And uh, actually, his membership of the Illuminati is not even hidden in his official Wikipedia. He's, he's long gone because he died in, uh, in, in, in the 90s. But uh, um, his experience with me was to introduce me to this reality, which was basically a very vast reality in which Italy was of course very important, but then we had also Monte Carlo, the Principality of Monaco, as an important base, which I was introduced to later on. And uh, I was initiated in April of 1993 in uh, his own form of Freemasonry, which uh, was uh, at the time uh, deemed as irregular because, of course, you have the recognition of the Nigel Lodge of England. And so later on, he, he, he told me I should regularize my position in England, which I did 10 years later with uh, the United Lodge of England when I was living in London. I uh, moved from Italy to London due to the first problems that I had because of, uh, uh, of my membership in this organization, because it was the end of what it was called in Italy the, the First Republic, the, it, it was basically the end of the Cold War, things were starting to, to move on. Uh, during the Cold War, of course, Italy was characterized by a controlled system, uh, by a lodge known as the P2 Lodge, which uh, is quite infamous, quite famous at the same time, which brought at the end a gentleman called Roberto Calvi to die in mysterious circumstances at Blackfriars Bridge in the early 80s uh, in London. And uh, I was basically introduced, like I said, to this reality. And then later on, I will uh, also be initiated in other secret societies, which uh, I commonly refer as the Illuminati Network, like, for example, the Ordo Templi Orientis, uh, uh, the Fraternita Sosa Cruciana Antigua, and many other secret societies. And so I started this process of becoming aware of all this and also working as an agent of these people, uh, going around the place also with the cover-up of my job, which at the time uh, was quite convenient because I was an internationally known DJ, uh, record producer, and so I could really move very well from country to the other without really testing too much interest. When eventually I will expose, I started to expose all this in 2006, of course things changed, but there was a period between 2003 and 2006 in which I clashed 
with the, there was an internal clash that brought me eventually to work out. And this, this started in 2003 when I was initiated in a certain uh, degree and I realized that in the end, the whole system was compromised and I didn't want to really be subject to those compromises. Uh, and at the same time, talking not only about compromises that can be of a, a political or physical nature, but there was also spiritual compromises uh, because you are engages, engaging with entities, especially in certain organizations like the OTO. And, uh, and, and these entities, of course, are used also by these uh, uh, occult uh, magicians uh, for throwing uh, curses and stuff. And so in the end, I, I just poked out and I started to denounce them. And it wasn't very easy because after less than a few months, uh, I, I started to receive a visit from the PST, which is the Internal Security Services in Norway, where I was living at the time in Oslo. And they threatened me. And later on in 2008, I was actually accused of espionage in, uh, in Norway. And that uh, was very hard for me. I had to uh, flee the country of Norway, go back to my native country of Italy. But with this accusation pending, I didn't have uh, uh, any money, anything, because all my assets were frozen. Eventually, they will uh, give up on this hideous accusation in uh, February of 2010. And then I could uh, proceed with my life. In the meantime, I had built, of course, a new life uh, in Italy. Uh, after being abroad for 15 years, because I left Italy in 1994 and I went back basically in uh, the summer of 2008. Uh, so I summarized it hopefully well. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Do you hear? Okay, let's let's put it down more. <laughs> more than one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. What kind of regulation you have on your Yeti, Doctor Sala? Um, I. I... I, I kind of have it um, mid-level. It seems to work. Okay, let me see. Let me see if I... Here, you can hear me? Okay, one, two, three. Can you... Uh, uh, no, if you want me to change the setting of the Yeti again, see if it works better. What setting do you suggest? Yeah. Well, 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 my setting, um, just just around the middle, your know, middle setting, and I mean the gain is turned yeah. down low. Low, okay. Low, okay. The gain is low for me. I, I turned it up low. This is how it is. I'm showing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's similar to what I got. I think. Yep, that's okay. Pretty okay. One, two, three. Can you hear me now? Is still doing the clip. One, two, three. 
Hello? What do you want me to do? Count? Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Are you still getting? Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so we just continue now. Okay. All right. Well, Leo, maybe you can just explain to us uh, exactly what it is uh, about the upper levels of Freemasonry that uh, people often talk about as being corrupt, but that the majority of, of Freemasons don't know how corrupt the organization is at that higher level. First of all, Freemasonry is divided in what is known as occult Freemasonry and social Freemasonry. Now, these two forms of Freemasonry don't necessarily uh, connect with each other. Um, uh, occult Freemasonry works out especially in certain rites. Some of them are not even reco uh, recognized by regular Freemasonry, like, for example, the Memphis and Mizraim rites, uh, the Egyptian, so called Egyptian rites. Uh, there is only one uh, of these rights by a guy called Giancarlo Seri, who I know in Perugia, Italy, which is recognized by official Freemasonry and has even opened as a sovereign sanctuary, I think, in, 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 in Russia a few years back. So, but usually the prevailing form of Freemasonry in the West is, of course, the ancient and accepted Scottish right as a right, then the, the, the actual. Um, in England, for example, where uh, the, the prevailing form is actually the Royal Arch and the basis for Freemasonry, which is the first three degrees, and then you have a series of options. The ancient and accepted Scottish Rite is not even called that way. It's called Rosequash Chapter because it would be antithetic for the Brits to call it ancient skeptic in England. They didn't want to call it that way. But uh, the elements, the occult elements, are not uh, necessarily there, uh, if not in some uh, degrees. Uh, and like I said, in some forms of Freemasonry, which are at times practice. Uh, in, in secret, even by regular Freemasons who don't want to have uh, problems with a regular standing. It happens even here in California, for example, where there is uh, regular Freemasons who have uh, an irregular lodge in uh, South Pasadena and, and, and they meet up uh, with a charter given from France, but it's completely irregular by so-called uh, Masonic standards uh, here in the US. Uh, the actual connection with the occult, uh, often apart from these rites, which I said can be a little bit more occultish and bring you to certain practices, which can include eventually also evocation of entities. Well, you are usually recruited from Freemasonry into other secret societies, which do these practices like Ordo Templi Orientis, is a, is a secret society that we can define as paramasonic, which saw also the involvement of Aleister Crowley uh, and uh, the, the known occultists, and they focus very much on the elementals, uh, on the opening of the chakra for certain rituals uh, and, and all that. But it's not, uh, te technically, it's not really Freemasonry, it's called 
paramasonic order uh, though it was heavily influenced by freemason in fact at one point isaac Crowley was invited to uh, correct the rituals and transform them because the freemasons here in america in detroit said they were too similar to their own rituals um, then you have uh, other secret societies like for example the temple of set founded by the late uh, dr michael aquino you have uh, um, other a variety of secret societies which i commonly put together and refer as the illuminati in my book but i explained they're not strictly the illuminati of adam bishop the illuminati of adam bishop which i also belong to which i was initiated and then i carried on uh, even for a number of years with a regular minerva assembly which is that's how it shapes up you have an, an earlier degree called the Minerva, in which you direct an assembly of Minervals, and I uh, directed an assembly of Minervals, and I was also the Grand Master uh, for Italy. And uh, um, the order of the Illuminati Vatan Veshat has more political interest rather than occult or esoteric interest. Uh, so it, it really depends where you want to go because there is a secret societies which are built for religious purposes, other for political purposes, and other for occult purposes. They can all be uh, part of this system that we call Illuminati, but they each have their own specific mission. So when it comes down, for example, to um, exopolitics, which is your subject, uh, I guess, of choice, uh, uh the, the 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 alien the aliens uh, as we know there is people like uh, uh, alan greenfield uh, who have dedicated a lot of time to this subject and so on in which they uh, they, they take it from an occult perspective of course from for an occultist encountering certain entities is uh, a little bit different uh, uh, it, 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 it comes with, uh, with an agreement, I guess, depending on, on what you're doing. I mean, if you're working on the basis of some ancient grimoire, you are, of course, evoking these entities. Uh, but, like I said, you don't uh, necessarily have uh, uh, the whole of Freemasonry involved in these kind of practices. It's rather a minority. Uh, because the majority of Freemasons, to tell you the truth, are led astray by their worshipful master and grandmasters who really keep them in the dark about uh, uh, what is really going on in the top levels of this system. And uh, in places like Australia, for example, they have even prohibited the Freemasons to uh, study or practice esoteric or the occult within the lodges of Freemasonry without a direct permission of the Grand Master. So I hope well, I did, uh, as described you a little bit, uh, a bit of clarity in this subject. Yes, that's helpful. Uh, as far as the, the kind of invoking of these uh, entities, uh, and of course this is where the exopolitical element comes in, yeah. that some organizations specialize in invoking these entities you know some might call them demons some might call them reptilian beings kind of uh, coming from different dimensions and that they are involved in some kind of satanic ritual abuse involving blood sacrifice i mean from my experience for example 
Um, there's not necessarily always a satanic ritual abuse uh, when it comes down to entities. Uh, there is definitely, though, uh, a uh, enslavement uh, from these demonic entities uh, to these human beings that uh, gradually lose their humanity and become really driven by these occult forces. Now, uh, for example, there is the, the Tifonian OTO, which was founded by uh, Kenneth Grant, uh, who was... Uh, uh, himself a disciple, but uh, Crowley had been for a brief time also his assistant uh, and uh, who, who was kind of uh, uh, very much focused from the 50s in connecting with what he called the serious current, in developing basically a connection with these entities. And uh, he did it uh, through a lodge, which he called the, the, the serious lodge, and he uh, he basically based uh, his work uh, on this uh, on on these kind of connections, and, and later on he became also a prolific author. There is also other people who have made various kind of experiments, uh, like uh, Michael Berthiaud, who uh, mixed uh, elements of, of of the Western esoteric tradition with voodoo, and uh, went uh, to get initiated in Haiti and then later on brought back here uh, to America a tradition which mixes this, these two elements. Now, I was initiated in Oslo in Norway in 2001 in the OTOA of Michael Berthiaud, and those people were pretty involved in the vocation of entities and also in sacrifices. Now, when it came down to sacrifices, I went along until they, you know, it was pretty much restricted to animal sacrifice. When I saw the instructions that started to talk about fetuses and uh, human sacrifice, babies, that is not really something I wanted to do. And that is something that uh, gradually, uh, actually pretty much immediately brought me in an open conflict with, uh, with these people. Um, aside from the decision that I made in June of 2006, uh, when I confronted the, the commandant, George Hugo Balestrieri, who was in charge of the International Rotary Division at the United Nations, and who was himself also a former member of the P2, who uh, basically didn't want to accept uh, my criticism towards certain uh, things that were happening within the Bohemian Grove here in America and other occult setups. And eventually we kind of clashed and this whole thing led to me uh, later on in the fall of that year and starting to expose my, uh, my previous uh, work within the New World Order. Can you maybe just elaborate a little bit on that Bohemian Grove connection? Because I know... Alex yeah. Jones kind of did that famous penetration where he exposed the the kind of what appeared to be a a, a kind of a a ritual uh, a sacrifice with Moloch, uh, but that looked looked like it was just a play. But is there something real behind that? Is, is there some genuine sacri human no. sacrifice involved? Now I talked very much uh, extensively about this subject in one of my confessions because I had the possibility of being guested in 2008 by a high priest of the Bohemian Grove, who was called John Compact, who officially writes, I think, children's books, but who is a staunch Republican and somebody who used to go there regularly. And uh, he invited me 
when I was in London in 2000, I think 2004, there was a conference at the Canterbury Masonic Research Center, which was, it doesn't exist any longer, but there was an organization that the Marquis of Northampton, who at the time was the Deputy Grand Master of the United Grand Lodge of England, had set up in this beautiful place, which used to be a tower owned by Sir Francis Bacon. And in this place, there was also an Egyptian right lodge, which wasn't regular, but was super secret, but they were all regular Freemasons involved in. And uh, in uh, in a conference that we dedicated, I remember, to, uh, which I show actually the, the, the flyer in volume one, to uh, many faiths and one brother, who basically was a sort of interreligious Masonic conference. Uh, I met this gentleman called John Compact, and he invited me to go to visit him in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I uh, eventually, in 2008, uh, eight, four years later, made my way there, and he was very kind. But uh, I discovered suddenly that the guy was not only a Freemason, but he was much more than that. He was associated with a witchcraft cult in England known as the Cultus Sabbati, which really kind of made me a little bit scared because I was staying there for two days, three days, you know, on my own in this house. And he had the biggest occult library, he claimed, in the U.S. downstairs. So I went downstairs and he actually had thousands of books, incredible books, I must say. And uh, it was a pleasure for me to study and be there for a few days to study all his texts and everything. But I also started to view these connections that he had with the witchcraft and with serious occult practices. And then he, he kind of, one day, I remember, we were there for breakfast and he thrown out, to the, oh, you know, I go also to the Bohemian Globe and one of their high priests. You know, he kind of like throwing it out like this. And I was like, huh? So I immediately, you know, uh, started to record and I started to have a conversation with him, with, which ended up after as an interview in volume one of my confessions. And so we went one step further from that, you know, I mean, uh, Alex, which I worked uh, for many years uh, as a Vatican expert on Infowars, uh, of course, uh, went inside the Bohemian Grove and did that scoop. But I wanted to know a little bit more about what they were doing. So I started to ask him, are you doing their evocations, magic? What's happening there? And he actually told me there wasn't any evocations made, but, but regarding the history of it, uh, in my latest book, volume nine, I explain how there is a direct connection with a guy called John Yarker and with uh, a group called uh, Said Baba, Said Baba, it was a right, it was a very obscure right, and also with the lodge uh, that uh, gave uh, birth to the Shalarafia. Now, the Shalarafia is uh, the, it exists, there is a, about 12,000 members worldwide. It's like a lodge uh, only for German people. And uh, it was founded back uh, in the 1850s, something like that. And actually, it is, it inspired immediately. Uh, the rituals and what they were doing, dressing up and all that inspired then the people who opened up the Bohemian Club. And later on, we'll purchase what is now known as the Bohemian Grove, where they do their yearly rituals, do, I think, two or three meetings a year there. But the connection with John Yarker is particularly interesting because John Yarker was the guy 
the occultists who also wrote arcane schools who very much promoted uh, just like uh, Albert Pike did for the ancient and accepted Scottish right he instead promoted the ancient and primitive right and the rights of Memphis and Israel which uh, grandmaster was at the time Giuseppe Garibaldi uh, who was the guy one of the unifiers of Italy uh, and 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 also grandmaster of the Grand Orient of Italy at one point but he was also grand hierophant of the Egyptian rights so I was initiated in the Egyptian rights and uh, became a 1995 in Norway, uh, in Oslo, in the Polaris Lodge. Uh, and uh, I, I studied it, of course. Uh, I studied very much these Egyptian rights so I could really understand all the various occult connections they had. Uh, but in reality, when it comes down to the Bohemian Grove, apart from meeting up for doing their, uh, let's say, geopolitical analysis that they do together with people like uh, Harry Kissinger and others and the military industrial complex as their own section. They don't really do much awkward stuff, but they build an egregore, meaning that that ritual that seems very theatrical, which Alex uh, uh, managed to film uh, is actually something that stands to build an egregore. Now, an egregore is an occult concept, uh, which I don't know if you if you are uh, if you know about, but it's basically a terminology that was picked up by a, a gentleman called Eliphas Levi, who himself uh, uh, inspired actually people like Albert Pike because uh, Eliphas Levi uh, wrote Dogmas and Rituals of High Magic. And transcendental magic and Eliphas Levi, uh, real name was Abel Louis Costin, and he was uh, one of the reasons for the foundation even of the Theosophical Society because he was incredibly inspirational. He had managed to evoke uh, Apollonius Tatiana in London in uh, I think in the 1850s, I don't remember exactly the year, but he went there and he managed to actually do this evocation successfully of this, uh, of this particular figure, which is very uh, admired, especially by the Gnostics and Neo-Gnostics, because you have to understand that uh, entities have been evoked by the Illuminati for a very long time, but the Illuminati, who are the Illuminati? They are basically the old Gnostics. The Gnostics are elitarian in their own approach to knowledge. Um, when uh, Before we started the show, I saw the cover of that book uh, of Ellen Pages. I remembered uh, uh, how this, the, the Freemasons uh, and people like her, people like Tobias Cherton, were very much pushing and have been pushing again all this Gnosticism on us because Gnosticism is really the belief of the Illuminati. And the belief is basically not for everybody, but for the chosen ones. Gnosticism means basically knowledge, but knowledge for who? For a restricted number of people. In uh, my latest book, I, I have a whole chapter dedicated to exposing how the Gnostics uh, uh, have been a threat to, 
to, to everybody, not only Christianity, but also Judaism. In fact, uh, even before the destruction of the Second Temple, there was a lot of talk uh, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and there was a lot of talk about uh, the Gnostic uh, uh, heresies, even within Judaism. Gnostics were the ones who started to evoke entities, even before the arrival of Christianity. Gnosticism goes back to the to, to Babylonian times. Uh, Gnosticism, uh, as you know, was very much cultivated in Alexandria of Egypt. But Gnosticism is the basis of the beliefs of the Illuminati to this day. That's why Crowley created his own Ecclesia Gnostica Cattolica. Which, and then also one thing we have to understand. When you see Ellen Page is talking about Gnostic Gospels, of course, she's talking about uh, the Nagamadi Gospels. But we have a whole bunch of neo-Gnostics which started to uh, filter uh, and create their own Gnostic church in, the, in 1888, a gentleman know, known as Jules Doniel, who was a, who was a Freemason who had worked at the archives at the Grand Orient of France, who had been actually studying to become a Jesuit, but was kicked out because he was always masturbating. This guy here made a science in the headquarters of the Theosophical Society in France in 1888 with the Albigians and the Caters, who were the, the, the Gnostics. Well, can, can we just kind of like back up a little bit? Because that's a lot of information there, and, and maybe... People would, would like to just get an idea. Now, I, I, I do want to talk about the Gnostics, but you said something. No, the Gnostics, I mentioned them because those are the ones who evoke the entities. Those okay, well, we, we, we want to get to that. But first, mm -hmm. you we, you talked about the Egyptian rites. Yes. And, and I just wanted to kind of like bring up this, uh, the Egyptian element, because the Egyptians, I mean, they, they have their... Their gods, you know, the the Horus and Osiris and Set and so forth, and so we, with the Egyptians and the and the secret societies, I mean, how how much of that involves actual beings that we would consider to be gods as opposed to like demons, and 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 are we talking about interdimensional beings? Are we talking about extraterrestrials? Yeah, yes. interdimensional beings. Gods? You know, when it comes, for example, to the Great Pyramid, I mean, the Great Pyramid, like uh, all, uh, you know, I mean, you have, of course, uh, the, 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 uh, the the chamber of the Pharaoh where apparently also Alistair Crowley slept one evening with his uh, uh, new wife and, and he started to recite the invocation of the bonus round, which basically uh, a grimoire which was just published by him and a guy called McGregor Matters, who happened to be at the time the leader of the Golden Dome, and who was, by the way, the guy who also translating the magic of Abramel in the Mage, another very important grimoire which Alistair Crowley used to get in contact with these entities. So when you are basically in Egypt and you go uh, in, uh, the, the, in, in the main chamber of uh, the... Uh, and at that time, of course, he was able to sleep in it, something that today people, of course, tourists will not be allowed to do. I remember myself, uh, I, uh, the last time I was, uh, of course, uh, with uh, 
the, 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 the son of uh, Ralph Butrus Galli, who was at the time Minister of Tourism, and we managed to have access in the evening, in the, in the middle of the night. But usually that's not permitted any longer, especially after the, the problems with terrorism. So, uh, but that space inside there, I never really touched anything or anything even around in Giza, because the main warning which the Muslims always give you is don't touch because the gene is going to jump on you, in you. And that is something that is not a joke that people should take very seriously, because, I mean, the, the concept of the gene, of the entity, which is also connected to something like a holy relict, or in that case also a place. So... There is, uh, of course, uh, this, uh, uh, they call them uh, gods. Uh, now we, we can call them, of course, uh, demons. They are, of course, uh, dangerous if you don't know how to approach them. So the initiation served this purpose. And, of course, uh, the initiation that was made to the pharaoh was made actually inside the pyramid. And it was made inside the pyramid possibly was made uh, on in, in on a chair which was made out of uh, uh, subs uh, of what is basically meteorite substance which was also used for a dagger uh, as we know in antiquity everything that was made out of meteorites had also a very important validity uh, extra energy but uh, the the initiation that you will be given will eventually put you in contact with these extra-dimensional beings. This, uh, it's, it's, uh, and, and, and so at that point, they say that even there is a, a story that even Napoleon had this kind of experience, uh, which apparently shocked him, even if some people say that was just a, a, a legend. So when we're talking about you know pyramids and invoking these beings, I mean the, the pyramids some say are portals. So it would make sense that people would go in there, have some experience or invoke one of these gods, one of these interdimensionals, you know, if we're talking about Horus or Osiris or Set or whoever, that there's a being that's able to come through. So I mean it you know, a portal is a gateway to some other dimension or some other, some other space-time locality. So, I mean, at what point do we kind of like make sense of the difference or is there a difference between an interdimensional and an extraterrestrial? Okay. Now, there is a lot of talk about uh, extra extra-dimensional not being extraterrestrial. But the moment in which you are extraterrestrial, you are basically also capable of mastering the multidimensionality that brought you here. So uh, I, I'm not one of those people who says, uh, uh, you know, takes only one stand and says, oh, these creatures are, uh, they're not really alien. They come from another dimension. Uh, listen, if you have mastered multidimensionality, you are capable of also traveling through the universe. That is so it doesn't really make any difference. When you talk about Satan uh, in a Christian, Christian Judaic term, a Christian term, you know that he's a fallen angel. Where is he fallen from? 
So, I mean, we're talking about, of course, entities that uh, in a way have been with us for a long time on pa in parallel universes. And of course, uh, quantum physics can explain that even better because uh, nowadays uh, with, uh, with people waking up to the reality of quantum physics, they seem to also understand more and more the idea of multidimensionality. Uh, from my own personal experience, because here we have to go back to my own personal experience, I practiced the magic of Abramel in the mage uh, in Rome in 1993, and I eventually came to have an experience that was paranormal. It was basically the materialization of an entity. Uh, and this happened during the magic of Abramel in the Mage, which is a six months long ritual. Uh, well, uh, another group that is kind of like very popular in terms of um, the, the literature concerning the extraterrestrial involvement in human history are the Anunnaki. And, of course, the Sumerian texts talk about the Anunnaki and uh, sure. the Anunnaki creating humanity and you know, creating humans to mine the gold and, uh, and to be used as slaves. And there's a connection also with, or is there a connection with the Elohim of the Bible? Because if we go to Abraham, I mean, Abraham was a Sumerian. So when he's, we, we, you, know, you have that tradition with the Elohim and the Bible. So is that a derivative of the Sumerian texts discussing the Anunnaki? For example, we know that there was a great flood and that then all these giants died, no? But in uh, occult terms, uh, when uh, Eliphas Levi took out this concept of egregore, meaning of thought form, which is generated by a lodge, by a group of people, and so on. He picked up uh, on a name, Egregori, which is uh, connected, of course, uh, to these beings, but also to their ghost, because once they disappear, they didn't really disappear, they, but they still keep on manifesting on another dimension, if, if you know what I mean here. Because uh, we are talking about, of course, uh, beings that were... Uh, as, we, uh, as, as we know, they created a mixed race of giants. Uh, and at that point, though, uh, that there was, of course, they were punished by divine retribution. And that was also why we uh, have developed ourselves in this way as human beings. Uh, so uh, the, the actual uh, Anunnaki demons call them however you want them, are, of course, involved with mankind's history. But that's why, when it comes down to exopolitics, people need to understand how to relate to these beings. Because if you relate to this being in a superficial way, you can end up mixing Astaroth, who is a demon, with Ashtar Command, which is a new age creation by a guy who lived around the corner from here, where I live here, Palm Spring, it was there, as you know, created this whole myth of the Ashtar Command. But in reality, it's a demon. So there is a lot of misunderstandings regarding these entities. Also because, uh, and this is something that I started to focus on volume seven, uh, but now I fully explain in my latest book, volume nine. And of course, I also explain to a certain extent in the Invisible Master, this, uh, uh, but my latest conclusion is that basically these uh, crashes like Roswell, and maybe even before there was the one in Magenta in Italy at the time of Mussolini, has brought us to deal with reverse engineering. And reverse engineering is basically the Trojan horse which brings us to now 
to the reality of cyber Satan, which is manifesting around us and will engage us by 2030. So we imagine exopolitics as a bunch of, you know, like uh, in, in, in a kind of a situation where you have uh, the spaceships on top uh, landing and invading war of the worlds kind of scenario. Well, that's not really how it's manifesting because the moment in which from the 1950s we started to develop artificial intelligence with the reverse engineering that we have obtained, we have uh, literally built a digital cage around us which they will take advantage of. And that is basically what Christians call, of course, the mark of the beast. But this is basically the trap that these beings have built around us so they can cage us. And that's what they're doing. Well, uh, I, you know, going back to the Anunnaki, I mean, the, the Sumerian texts talk about different agendas, different Anunnaki. And, sure. of course, the Bible talks about the Elohim. They talk about the, you know, like the uh, Book of Enoch talks about the fallen angel and the righteous angels. So, you know, when we're talking about these interdimensionals that are able to come through portals or, or, or travel through space-time in, in craft, I mean, how important is it to distinguish between the, the positive and the negative? I mean, it, it, you know, it sounds as though, yeah, can you talk about the positive factions of the sure. Anunnaki and how they're related to, say, the positive elements of the El Elohim? Uh, the positive elements depends from your own vibration because, I mean, you will not be able... You see, there is a lot of superficiality in the New Age movement. People think they can automatically channel angels, get in contact with angelic beings. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It happened, yeah, for Moses. He, he went 40 days on Mount Sinai and then came back down with the tablets and then there was the golden calf and then he had to go back up. But that was a particular moment when you are actually arriving with your 40, because 40 days is also a practice within the Illuminati, which is well known. It was uh, uh, well known by Cagliostro, Count Cagliostro. Uh, it was, of course, known by Jesus, who went for 40 days in the desert. The 40 days practice is basically in order to enter in contact with the, 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 the angelic realm that can uh, be, of course, uh, directly administered by God and come in contact with you. But there's very few people that have that purity at heart to be able to make that connection and to vibrate and to be able to see them. When you start playing with other kind of entities, they will definitely materialize in front of you. And I'm talking about the more demonic ones, uh, the lower realm. Those are more easy to encounter. And that I think you're meaning. Uh, I think that's what you're meaning here, uh, if if I'm understanding right. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, we've had lots of stories about people mean, meeting angels or being saved by angels. I mean, those are as common as people but, think. But that is usually close death experience. Now, close death experience is all a very powerful experience. That I think is one of the most powerful experiences that a human being can have. Uh, I personally had it when I was very young. I drowned and I was saved by miracle and, and brought back to life. And I still remember the moment uh, in which I was almost ascending through this tunnel of light. And But obviously, I'm still here, so I'm still alive. And I regard it as a very important moment in my own life that maybe, in a way, helped me later on in life not to fear certain things. But when it comes down 
to the entities, the entities that, of course, are malignant, that are uh, negative, are definitely more easy to deal with and to evoke. The ones that instead, uh, like I said, are uh, more, if it's not, like I say, a near-death experience in which then suddenly you are saved by an angel, that is a different thing. But I'm talking about the actual sitting down and say, okay, I'm going to evoke an entity and materialize it in front of me. Well, that's not possible without a purpose if it's in the angelic realm. If it's in the demonic realm, you have to give them something. You have to sacrifice something because otherwise they're going to take you as a sacrifice. So uh, when you go and open a grimoire and want to, I don't know, evoke Lucifer Focal and you want to suddenly, yeah, but what are you sacrificing to this demon? Because if you don't sacrifice, they're going to come and get you. So that's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, in, in your book, uh, Invisible Masters, you talk about the Illuminati wanting us to believe that the Anunnaki are our creators. So, yeah, can you elaborate on it? Because I thought that's what the Sumerian texts actually discuss. The Sumerian texts say that the Anunnaki created us or the assembly of Anu. I mean, they talk about the Anuna creating humans, but you're, you're saying the Illuminati want us to believe that. So can you elaborate? Well, I... In my book, and of course you have been a protagonist of ancient aliens, I'm quite critical of the fact that suddenly uh, History Channel and the mainstream media is pushing that kind of theory, simply because that is giving these creatures a benignant kind of image in front of us rather than a malignant one, a demonic one. Uh, so that is my main criticism here. Regarding the fact that uh, we are, of course, uh, you know, these are, our, you know, God is our creator. And so when I discuss, uh, you know, the fact that they want us to believe, the Illuminati prefer us to see things in that way, is because, first of all, I, uh, I explain that they want us to believe that because, like I said, it's more convenient for them that we believe they are benignant, that uh, they are, you know, are benefactors rather than they are uh, enslavers. Now, the Gnostics, for example, have the concept of archons, the, con the concept of eons, the concept basically of a god which is malignant towards mankind and wants to enslave mankind. Now, I'm not embracing that kind of belief, but definitely there is, uh, there is a. Uh, for us, the possibility of falling and perceiving things in the wrong way if we are not prepared. So I hope that this answer is okay, but I don't really understand what re reality the question, exact question was here. Okay, well, maybe I'll come at it at, at another way. Um, you, can, you distinguish between uh, extraterrestrials that have uh, helped genetically engineer humanity and those yeah. extraterrestrials that are crippling humanity. So some are helping cripple us, our DNA, and others help genetically engineer. Or, you know, whether you're talking extraterrestrials like the Anunnaki. Yeah. 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 From, from my point of view, I take it always from a, a Judeo-Christian point of view. 
these uh, entities were punished. Of course, they, the Book of Enoch, I guess, uh, is probably the one that gives us a more clear description of the whole thing. They eventually encounter so the, uh, the daughters of men, they, they copy, they create this mixed race and all the rest. Now, I firmly believe that's the case, but I also firmly believe that uh, God, apart from the fact that they, of course, they have helped giving us some knowledge, transmitting us some knowledge. Like, for example, there is uh, black magic. Black magic is being transmitted. I mean, at least the occultists, the Illuminati teach that black magic was transmitted by those fallen angels that we find in the Book of Enoch. While instead, the, the actual uh, other forms of magic were transmitted uh, instead by uh, the development uh, made by Abrams, uh, by the, 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 the son, sorry, of Adam. And, and so there was, uh, there is also a distinction here uh, that this, uh, I mean, these entities that we see uh, portrayed in the past are beneficial in the end because also we have to understand our concept of space and time is restricted to our own lifetime while instead if you see all this even the negative events and that's what i also talk about in the invisible master from a, uh, an outside point of view from a, a point of view of somebody who lives uh, in eternity well then things manifest you know a negative thing that can happen like the disappearance of the dinosaur can produce the possibility for mankind to develop later on. If 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 you know what I mean, if, if you understand my concept here, it's like uh, we we have to understand that at times some negative events are triggered, so then some positive outcome, and that is part really of the alchemy and the transformation, the, the constant transformation of mankind. Well, one of the things that we learn from the Book of Enoch is that what happened in the ancient world is that you have this kind of like direct interference by you know the fallen angels, we might call them regressive extraterrestrials, and how the, 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 the righteous angels, what we might call benevolent extraterrestrials, kind of oversaw that, and then eventually there was a war, a conflict in the heavens, so that could be like a space battle. So that's more than space battle, I will always call it divine retribution, a little bit like the fall of Atlantis. There were uh, 10 kings, there was an Atlantis that was perfect uh, with Poseidon uh, as the ultimate god and all that, but then also there is the moment in which the, the, the kings didn't get along very well and in which eventually they would be punished and the whole of Atlantis uh, disappeared. So you see, divine retribution is always around the corner, and, uh, and 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 we have to be respectful of the laws that go along with it. Okay. Well, well, this is an important concept. I mean, divine retribution. I mean that in religious uh, terminology invokes this idea of a all supreme God that invokes these kind of invisible or etheric angels to defeat demons in some battle. But in in a, I mean. Can't that also be just explained as a space battle where you have like a galactic federation, a council assembly that invokes certain galactic rules and says, well, these 
extraterrestrials that are interbreeding and conducting genetic experiments, they cross the line. So we're going to go in there and take them out and punish them. So, you know, could that also be a form of, you know, maybe that's how divine retribution uh, can be explained in kind of like physical terms involving these different high-tech extraterrestrial societies. Well, I'm of the idea that, uh, of course, a UFO can be driven by a benignant as well as a malignant force. So it's not necessarily the, 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 the technology is not necessarily evil because, you know, uh, my car is not necessarily an evil car. It depends who drives my car. So, you know, if, if I have a terrorist driving my car, probably the guy can kill 10 people. If I drive my car, I don't kill anybody. I just go along doing my... You know, so so definitely when it comes down to the the, the 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 hardware, let's say, the hardware is not necessarily good or evil, but the intention, the entities, of course, that have also rebelled, I see it, of course, my interpretation is uh, more, let's say, a religious kind of interpretation because in the Illuminati, uh, the, the actual way that we see things is always... Uh, uh, spiritual religious uh, and, and 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 we go beyond the material uh, concept uh, but i mean i understand that they can be also interpreted in that way i mean i don't have a problem with that well uh, let's go to this key figure within the old testament or the hebrew religion yahweh or jehovah yeah. whoever you want to describe him that uh you know, and i think you could consider him to be an invisible master. I mean, is is this really the same God that uh, Jesus or Yeshua prayed to? Because, I mean, in the book of Deuteronomy, you have, I mean, this uh, this, Yeshua, this um, Yahweh commands the Palestinians to commit uh, ethnic cleansing and genocide against uh, these other tribes. Uh, but in the teachings of Yeshua, I mean, he's teaching that the great commandment or one of the great commandments is to love your neighbor. So, you know, you, you have a Jehovah or Yahweh saying, you know, obliterate your neighbors, the giants, the Anakim and so forth. But on the other hand, you have Jesus or Yeshua saying God commands us to, to love our neighbor as thyself. So are we talking about two gods that are discussed in the Christian traditions? No, no. Absolutely. I think that, first of all, Moses starts a process which, of course, brings, uh, brings out of Egypt and towards the, the, the one God, the belief in monotheism. Then we have, of course, some problems for Moses because Moses, people don't understand, but he, he doesn't go out of Egypt only with the, the, his own uh, Jews. He goes out of Egypt with what is known as the Erev Rav, the multitude. And if you go and check what is the multitude, it was basically those uh, high priests, uh, those magicians uh, that were uh, basically defeated by Moses and his brother and uh, decided to follow him. And they're actually accused often uh, by the Jewish tradition of having interfered. The, the Erev Rav are, uh, since then have always been accused of having interfered with the genuine uh, Jewish belief. Uh, Moses goes, of course, and makes a deal with God, which includes also the Ark of the Covenant, which includes also building a permanent uh, 
place that will be brought across the desert for the period uh, of, of course in which they are still not in the Holy Land, then when they arrive there, eventually they will bring these uh, things that uh, um, facilitate the communication with God and they will plant them in what is the first temple of King Solomon that later on will be destroyed and then there will be the second temple. Uh, but uh, the, the actual connection with the God that is so fierce was uh, perfectly in line uh, with, uh, of course, uh, with everything that happened until the time of Jesus, in which Jesus then uh, had an approach, of course, uh, that was unusual. And that's, for, that's one of the reasons why he wasn't really accepted uh, as a Messiah by the Jews, because he didn't do certain things that the Mosaic law they said requested. Now, it's important to understand, though, that that was a moment of great conflict within Judaism. There was two currents, one that was uh, very much in line with the Hellenistic beliefs, the other one that was more traditional. Uh, and eventually the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the, the, the Pharisees, as they call them in Italy, they won this, uh, this whole thing and they became the driving force of Judaism after the destruction of the Second Temple with, in fact, also writing down the oral Torah in the Mishnah. And uh, when it comes to uh, Jesus and what he said, we have to really interpret very much what he's trying to do there. He's trying to lay the foundations for, first of all, converting to one God a bunch of pagans, <laughs> which was the Gentiles. And he managed to, but there was a lot of compromise that were made later on by his own uh, representatives, including Paul, which figure has always been a little bit controversial because apparently he never really met Jesus. So I think it's the same God. The, Jesus uh, is giving us a possibility, but he's also saying, when I come back, I, you know, when he comes back, he's vindicative just as, as much as the God of the Old Testament. So we have uh, this period in between in which uh, we, we, we have to realize, of course, uh, uh, that he is uh, the, 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 the Messiah, that he is basically the one that will come back and that... Uh, but this, of course, is a belief for Christians. People who are not Christians don't believe this. But the Muslims, for example, also believe it will be Jesus that comes uh, back in the end times because Muhammad went uh, too high in the heavens and can't come back in the end times. So we have, of course, a different concept of the Abrahamic faith, but they all converge on a messianic figure. And, uh, of course, the, we have also probably this difference that you see in the Old Testament and New Testament God, which I personally don't see because I see Jesus as a moment of preparation for what will be an acceptance in the end times, which will go through, though, a very harsh moment because uh, what is going to manifest in the next few years will be for mankind almost unbearable. But that is, uh, of course, already being prophesied and announced, uh, especially in the book of Revelation, which ends up, of course, the New Testament. Well, uh, in terms of uh, your book, the, the Hidden Masters, you, you distinguish between oh, uh, these hidden masters and black magicians. Yeah. And I, I know in kind of like 
studying the extraterrestrial or exopolitics. They do a gray area. You see, the book has a gray cover. Well, and let me just finish this this question. Mm. Uh, and the question is that in the exopolitics literature, there's a lot of stories about these kind of ascended masters or masters of wisdoms working directly with positive extraterrestrials. Uh, but there are also stories of black magicians kind of like trapping extraterrestrials who get too close, invoking them and trapping them. So, yeah, can you clarify this relationship between these invisible masters, black magicians, and different extraterrestrials? Well, yeah, they, they call them secret chiefs. They call them invisible masters. But sometimes, like the cover shows, they can be a gray area which is not well defined as good or bad, because we go back to what I said earlier. The intentions of some of these uh, hidden masters uh, on, uh, on, on what will manifest thanks to their work, it's not uh, like the, the, their intention is not, not necessarily good or bad, but will manifest something in the long term, which maybe we define as bad in the short term. So it's, it's always a little bit uh, confusing. But... This uh, ascended master literature comes mostly from the Theosophical Society. Now, uh, the Theosophical Society is a direct, uh, uh, it descends directly from Spiritism. From the 1850s, the moment in which we have Spiritism, uh, we, we started to see the manifestation of something unusual. We also start to see a lot of charlatans that, of course, make a lot of uh, assertions that are completely uh, misleading. So we have to be very careful. But uh, this led to the foundation of the Theosophical Society by Madame Blavatsky, who was herself a medium. And uh, from the Theosophical Society, we can say that uh, ufology starts emanating from what is actually uh, theosophy, but also modern Satanism. So we have... Uh, uh, you know, people that were definitely very dubious in their acts, like uh, George, like Adamski. It's a very dubious figure. Uh, what kind of entity was he connecting with, really? And, and, and so we have a lot of occultists, though, right at the start of the, the past century, especially the ones involved with Alistair Crowley, who started to get involved also with... Uh, the, the very early, well, the, the um, very can we, can we just go back a little bit there. I mean, you mentioned George Adamski and being yeah. a very questionable figure. I mean, I, I didn't find anything in Adamski's literature that kind of made me think that he's a questionable figure. I mean, he spoke about the Space Brothers and meeting them and, yeah. and them being these ascended yeah. masters. As you know, in my book, I write about his relation with the Vatican, for example, with Perigo. I, uh, and, and, and if he did or not met with the Pope, and, and what did that mean? Uh, so, I mean, obviously, we, 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 you know, we can consider Adamski uh, a benevolent figure, but we can also consider him somebody who was working very close with, uh, uh, with the Jesuits and with the people that I don't personally like. I mean, he was also, of course, from that, he, he created that royal order of Tibet. He was basically involved with the people within the theosophical milieu, let's say. Theosophy kind of manifested in, 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 in what became the Space Age. He uh, wrote that book, Flying Sources of Land, in 1953, 
but he was also, I mean, in that period, we have also people like Mead Lane, for example, with the, the Borderland Science Research Association, who also uses theosophical terms in that famous uh, document, which also circulated when uh, they published it on the FBI vault. You remember the one about interdimensional beings, uh, a document that was published the same week as the Roswell crash, which was advising people to be careful about these entities. Of course, their take was that they were benevolent in their invasion. But uh, of course, uh, that is uh, the take uh, of Madeleine and of course of his medium that was working with him. Uh, we, so I, I don't I, know. I, you know, I, I think it's very kind of uh, interesting uh, that, uh, I mean, at that time, this is when the exile politics kind of literature talks about different extraterrestrial groups arriving, uh, kind of human groups arriving to warn uh, the Eisenhower administration about developing and using thermonuclear weapons and negative groups associated with, say, these tall greys from Orion saying, you know, we want to make deals with you and if you let us abduct a few people, then we'll give you advanced tech and so forth. So. Yeah, there's there's different groups arriving. So, and it seems that Adamski and Mead Lane and those people were talking about this kind of human-looking group that wanted to promote this kind of spiritual um, education or upliftment. Um, but then uh, the the military industrial complex worked with these grey, tall grey extraterrestrials that came afterwards. So, yeah, I mean, I think they're very different. In my reality, uh, I, uh, I mean, I was brought up within a more occult frame of uh, mindset. So uh, the the actual greys have always been seen as a problem because uh, it's a little bit like the demonic side, the, 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 what the uh, Islamic people call the jinn. There is many uh, there is many cases of abduction, for example, in. Uh, in, in the Islamic literature of people who are abducted and then brought uh, in this other reality by the jinn. But personally, I've, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I talk by my own experiences, you see, and I talk about the stuff which I've studied and I was made to study. So I can't talk outside of my spectrum of knowledge about things I haven't witnessed with my own eyes. Now, I witness one being of light surrounded by during the magic of Abramelin image, that was the only time that I literally had something in front of me, and it, it was it was very scary. I was petrified. I, I couldn't move, and this really was really something that uh, shocked me. And uh, even if it was, uh, it happened basically 30 years ago in 1993. I still uh, I still remember it like it was uh, yesterday. But, I mean, it was my own experience. I, I can't talk for other experience of what is being said by other people. Within the experiences of, of Secret Society and Freemasonry, Marquis Roberto Caldirola, who is now deceased, but I interviewed also with Princess Corona Camaro 10 years ago, he admitted that uh, he had seen the greys. Uh, he had gone, of course, he was a very important character. I mean, he was a member of the P2, he was an aristocrat in Italy. He had been actually awarded, he received an award by, uh, I think, George Bush. Uh, and, and, and so he was actually led into Area 51. And he 
confirmed that there was actually there some alien creatures. He did that during an interview which we conducted with Princess Kaoru Nakamaro. But having, I mean, that is what he said. I have never been in Area 51 inside Area 51, so I can't confirm you that or seen other things. Okay. Well, uh, David Icke is a, a very interesting figure because he suggests that uh, the, the British royal family and the royal families in many other countries are dominated by these uh, shape-shifting reptilians. The bloodline that he focuses on the bloodlines and, say, and says that there's the aristocracy often have these reptilian genetics and that that's what they kind of like use to justify their position in these bloodlines. And, of course, he says that uh, they do all sorts of satanic ritual abuses using blood sacrifice and so forth. So what do you think of David uh, Icke and his well, as you know, theory? As you know, I talked about an invisible master and I was fairly critical about it. And I simply said that, you know, I'm related to the Queen Mother. My grandfather was a cousin of the Queen Mother. I don't have any tail in between my legs. I never had any particular physical connotation that was different from another human being. So I know, though, that within the DNA, of course, you can have, you can be a depository of ancient knowledge and all that. But like I said, I made this very clear. Uh, I think uh, if you read The Invisible Master, uh, you, you know what is my position on all that. I, I, I didn't have that. But I have to say that a lot of things that David Hike say are correct, but I wanted also to correct, and actually he gave me the possibility in 2006 to publish uh, one of my first articles when I came out uh, with my first blog, and then later on, almost immediately, I got threatened uh, uh, by the security services in Norway. Uh, and, and I must say that he says a lot of things that are absolutely correct. But when it comes down to the lizard theory, well, that's a little bit far-fetched, but still not completely far-fetched because in reality, we see that the demons are depicted as lizards in most cultures. We see that there is definitely a demonic nature in certain families. Now, I come from this family, which is the lion family, and I know that they used to evoke Lucifer on a Friday, for example, uh, they, in, in the castle of Glamis in Scotland. And that was a regular practice that they did. And there is a lot of other occult practices which are done by the nobility in England. Of this, I can confirm the existence. I can't confirm things that I haven't witnessed with my own eyes. Okay, all right. Well, with the the um, recent coronation of uh, King Charles III, I mean, what role does he play in the occult hierarchy? I mean, because England or Britain seems to be playing a very kind of insidious role in world politics at the moment, and some people have suggested that King Charles is like the Antichrist. So, so what what's your take on King Charles, the occult uh, hierarchy, the Antichrist, and so forth? Well, you're talking about that is a subject which I discussed in volume eight of my confessions, which is another of my books in particular, because in volume eight, I discuss very much the entertainment business. And as you know, they all end up in one way or another bowing down to the queen before and now the king of England. They get knighted like Mick Jagger or they get, you know, bestowed some kind of recognition. He is definitely somebody 
uh, who in my view of things could be the Antichrist just as well as Prince William, but it could be also Barack uh, Hussein Obama. I mean, we, 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 we can't be certain. But of course, when it comes to the bloodline, the bloodline is a very important aspect. And on that, we don't have, like I said, I don't have a physical characteristic that I can recognize as being different. Because, uh, but when it comes to the spiritual side uh, and to the shape shifting, well, there was once a person who said that they saw my mother shape shift, uh, and 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 I was like, a little bit, you know. But was that shape shift physical, or was it something that they perceived? So, um, and we are talking. Like I said, Jessica Lyon Young, my mother, is a direct relative of, of Prince Charles. So I mean, she's the head of the of the of the of the expats in Italy. So somebody, I'm not saying it lightly. I'm saying that I have, of course, the utmost respect for my own family, but I also know that they have this dark side, which is present, and that, of course, especially when it comes down to the Windsors and. Prince Charles is, and now King Charles is pretty obvious. I mean, a guy who had as best friend Jimmy Saville and, and his brother had as best friend Jeffrey Epstein. Of course, these people are sick. There has to be something wrong with them. It's, it's not normal. And I can say also, and I can confirm you this, that there is a lot of dark things that happen within the British aristocracy. That's why Alistair Crowley was so successful. And that's why... There is a lot of occultism also entrenched within the English security services. MI5, MI6 have had re relations and involvement with occultists. The, the, the CIS, the, the, the English Secret Service, is definitely always been linked with uh, occult aspects. Also, there is another thing, though. Here we are talking with a guy who is the cousin of the Grand Master of Freemasonry, the Duke of Kent. His brother, Michael of Kent, is the head of the Mark Masons, which is also another important branch of Freemasonry. Freemasonry in general in England, the United Grand Lodge of England, which I was a member of, has, of course, a direct relationship with the royal family that no other form of Freemasonry has around the world. And that's why every single Grand Lodge in the world, including the Grand Lodge of Australia or other countries in the world, have always to seek the recognition of the United Grand Lodge of England. So there is, and the bloodline, though, which I personally was uh, acquainted with and I published also in volume two of my confession, is the bloodline that goes all uh, the, the, from the Lion family all the way back to King David. So there is definitely also a link that they claim to have with the, uh, the, the House of David. So... Well, uh, one... Uh one thing that kind of uh, recently emerged was that there was a, a remote viewing of the coronation of King Charles III. And, you know, you, you have the public coronation. Everybody saw that. You know, ostensibly that's where the power is transferred. But there was a remote viewing uh, conducted by a group out of Hawaii called uh, Crypto Viewing run mm -hmm. by Dick Ulgaia. And he says that what they remote viewed was that there was a secret ceremony and a secret coronation that involved blood sacrifice where King Charles assumed the real power. So yeah, what do you do you know anything about that? Was there a secret ceremony that where the real power transferred to King Charles? 
There is, of course, secret ceremonies, but I don't know about what you said. I mean, it seems a little bit, to me at least, a little bit far-fetched. Having said that, everything is possible. But uh, like I said, I'm as a journalist, I always uh, attend to the facts. I mean, I'm always uh, attend to the facts. And I think that definitely there is something evil going on in that family that will manifest because... When I was within the realm of British Freemasonry, they make me acquainted with the way that Prince William was conceived. And when they told me how Prince William was conceived, I was absolutely shocked. They made it in a way so he could actually be born uh, to celebrate the summer solstice. Uh, and they made all series of, I remember, calculations that involved uh, astro astrological calculations, very complex ones. So, I mean, there is even a story that uh, goes around that, that I heard after to confirm of this, in which they said that uh, Prince King Charles, at the time Prince Charles with Lady Diana, was there reading all these books of black magic uh, and preparing for the conception as an occult ritual. So that is something that instead uh, it's it, I, I had confirmed from, I remember Tony Henley, who is a very important Freemason in the United Kingdom Lodge of England and uh, also head of the, another internal group called the Louis de Cohen, which are also very influential. And he confirmed that uh, uh, the conception of Prince William was made in an occultist fashion. Okay, all right. Well, that's a uh, spirit. Because they had to capture a certain spirit. You see, for every time of the day, you have a certain spirit that you can capture. And they wanted to capture a specific one. Okay. I know we mentioned, or you mentioned a little bit earlier, something about these um, these masters uh, that were associated with the Theosophical Society, Madame Blavatsky. So I just wanted to get you to kind of like, Share what you know of the, the Masters of the Far East, that series of books by Baird Spaulding where he talked about these kind of like ascended beings living in the Himalayas and other okay. parts of, of Europe. I mean, are we talking – what are no, we no. talking about here? Okay, first of all, the first people who actually opened up the, uh, the Tibet to the West were the Jesuits. They were the first people to arrive to Tibet. And they were the ones who took control spiritually of Tibet a long time before Madame Blavatsky ever visited or ever encountered the, 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 her own experiences. So once she encountered her own experiences, it was already polluted by somebody who had been there and who had already planted the seeds for, for this whole misconception. So the master, this... Uh, uh, hidden masters from the East who, of course, you know, Madame Blavatsky cleverly uh, um, consults and all the rest. Uh, there is, uh, unfortunately, also the influence of the Jesuits also lurking behind the corner. They are the occultists of the Vatican. They were the ones that uh, when there was the Reformation, they were nominated as the heads of the counter-reformation by the Catholic Church. With uh, there was the founder Ignacio Loyola who went into a cave, uh, consulted with these entities, and eventually came out with uh, the spiritual exercises, which are still practiced to this day by most powerful people on the planet. So, uh, Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society, soon after the death 
of Blavatsky were taken over by the Jesuits, and this is common knowledge even for theosophists. Not all the branches, of course, but they were taken over, and then they immediately also uh, created that fictitious messiah who was Krishnamurti, which, uh, of course, uh, uh, then... Uh, uh, went in front of everyone and said, "I'm not the Messiah. This is uh, this uh, this whole thing is BS." And and that was, uh, of course, uh, the the exposure of the Theosophical Society made by Krishnamurti. But this uh, ascended masters that the the people claim exist, you know, like for example, the Count de Saint Germain. Now, the Count de Saint Germain was a serious historical figure who was definitely involved within the Illuminati at very high level who was involved also with alchemy, who initiated also the Count Cagliostro, but then to push him there as an ascended master. Well, you have to understand, theosophy is the ground zero of the New Age experiment, which is very important for the Illuminati to manipulate and control and then craft and put together the future one world religion. Okay, well, there's another... Uh, book I wanted to ask you about, which is kind of similar to what we were talking about in terms of masters in the Himalayas, and that is uh, uh, Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi. Yeah. And he he in that he talks about a master in the Himalayas called Babaji. So again, you know, you have this idea of a master, and this has nothing to do with uh, uh, with uh, the Jesuits. This is uh, kind of like very clear. Uh, an influence of kind of Vedic India, that it's part of this Kriya Yoga tradition of these ascended masters in the Himalayas. So, first of all, you think it doesn't have to do anything with the Jesuit, but the, remember one thing the first thing Ignacio Loyola did was to send his uh, emissaries to China, where they become assistants to the emperor, to India, where they become assistants to the number one Brahmins, and to Tibet where they were the first Westerners to actually get initiated and stay there as lamas. Because uh, the way that the Jesuits operate is not by identifying as Jesuits, but by transforming themselves. So having said that, uh, uh, going back to, of course, uh, uh, Yogananda, we are talking about uh, somebody who has brought uh, into the West something like uh, uh, meditation, these practices will probably never have been brought here to the West without the input of the Theosophical Society. Now, is this input always been negative? Not necessarily. But having said that, I don't personally think that the practices of Yogananda are necessarily uh, something that I want to engage with. But uh, for the Westerners, a lot of Westerners have also been misled by people like him, uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, that is uh, something uh, that has happened. But I will not be able to say. There was Crowley who at one point uh, said to one of his disciples, go to India and get initiated in all these various currents. And so he also talks, uh, and, and, and he himself actually uh, also has... Uh, created an organization called AMUKOS, which basically mixes the elements of the tradition of Babaji with the elements of the tradition of Alistair Crowley. Let's not forget that Crowley founded the AA uh, with uh, Bennett, who was the guy who brought for the first time Buddhism to Great Britain. So th 
there is always a connection here. Uh, and the Theosophical Society, of course, was the mother of all connections uh, for, for bringing over and mixing elements of the of, 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 of these traditions from the Far East with the Western tradition. Well, you know, I, I think this is probably a point of uh, disagreement because I, I think that the traditions of uh, India are, are kind of far deeper and far exceed anything. Let, let me finish. Let me finish. Far exceed anything that was contributed by the Jesuits or by Western innovators like uh, Elena Blavatsky. I mean, Blavatsky went to India not so much to introduce theosophy, but to kind of glean or to learn from the Indians uh, sure. what, what they have, because their traditions go back thousands of years. So yeah, if we're talking about religion, I, I, I don't think uh, you, you could say that the Jesuits have somehow polluted or controlled the kind of philosophies or the traditions of people like Yogananda and oh, Krishna and Aurobindo, but sure. you know th these these traditions stand alone and I think above a lot. Of Sarah, these traditions will not have been imported in the West uh, if it wasn't for the Theosophical Society. The Theosophical Society was the network of the British Empire, which India was part of. When you talk about India, you talk about some a place where I, you know, my father brought me to India when I was six years old. And I spent months in, in Ceylon also uh, in India. So I, I know a little bit what I'm talking about. It's not that I saw what the gurus do. I was directly, I went into their temples. I saw what Hinduism is about. I saw what Buddhism is about by direct experience, not by opening a book. So uh, the, 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 it's not part of our DNA as Westerners. I'm not saying that it's uh, something uh, bad but it's not part of our tradition. If we were to find our own tradition, uh, and we should then go more into the uh, Western initiatic system, like I called it in the Invisible Master, which of course then points us to uh, the studies that were, of course, we have the Gnostics, we have the Rosicrucians later on, we have Freemasons. These are part of the Western system that, uh, of course, we can discuss. But... Uh, I mean, uh, I don't see them as superior to us. I mean, even the Chinese have a great alchemical tradition, probably one of the most ancient in the world. But having said that, we uh, in this part of the world probably can be close, more closely linked to Egypt rather than to China or to India. Having said that, probably all these traditions uh, in ancient times we're all connected because they have a lot of similarities one with the other. But I tend to think that we should always rely on our own traditions rather than seeing the, the traditions of other cultures and relying on traditions of other cultures. If, if you understand what, uh, what is my point of view here. Okay, all right. Well, a journalist that knows exactly, I mean, I studied, for example, many years René Guénon. René Guénon, I think, yeah. wrote some of the most incredible books regarding the Vedanta. And some of them I have studied and all that. But like I said, I'm, I'm born in Rome. I can't, you know, Rome has a tradition of thousands of years. Why should I look to another country? I'm not born in Palm Springs. I'm born in Rome. Well, you know, because I think it is worth looking at another country because if you look at the traditions of Rome, uh, you know, these are these are quite young compared to Vedic India, even, and they're even young compared to the Sumerian tradition. Uh, tradition. I mean, the, I was the, in the, 
Sumerian texts are much older, and a lot of he the Hebrew faith is a derivative of the Sumerians. And of course, a lot of people like to say, well, you know, the Hebrew faith is is older, or you know, the Book of Enoch suggests that it's a, it's kind of like it predates the, the the Great Flood, and so we don't need to look at the Sumerian text. But I think that's wrong. I think the Sumerian texts are older; it's much richer, and same similarly with the Vedic texts. I mean, they're older, much richer. So I, I would say that. You know that that they have a, a great influence in shaping kind of Western going that is Going back to the Illuminati, yeah. uh, the Ordo Templorientis was created, in fact, uh, in nineteen between nineteen oh three nineteen oh four in between Austria and Germany by two gentlemen, and one of them, uh, one of them was Theodor Royce, the other one was Karl Kerner. And this guy here was a pharmacist, a uh, rich guy, who, though, went to the East, started to bring all these elements from the Vedic tradition, mixed in them in with Sufism, with uh, Western Hermeticism. And then together, you construct basically the basis of what is the knowledge of this particular Illuminati school. But like I said, I talk for what I know, so I talk strictly for what I know. Uh, in that case, uh, there was, of course, uh, the will of these people who also were very much inclined to follow Gnosticism because Gnosticism is something that they could adapt to many things. And so they, they, they went into the study of certain tantric practices. They, of course, started to practice what they called sexual magic. And then that sexual magic was developed here in the West. But of course, it was born out of practices that were done for thousands of years in India, and then they were brought here. Uh, but the, the OTO claimed that they could do that because in Austria and Germany, there was a different mentality from the English mentality. Because in the English Victorian mentality, they would have never been able to embrace Tantra or that or any form of sexuality because uh, you know the Victorian uh, times were very strict with uh, very conservative in their upbringing. So uh, the, the, in the Illuminati there was uh, this Academia Masonica that uh, later became the OTO and that Crowley eventually was contacted in uh, around 1910 uh, by Theodore Royce in London because when they read what Crowley was writing they noticed there was some, some things that were written which were actually secrets that they were teaching in their own lodges. And, and so they, uh, at that point, uh, said, well, uh, we would like you to welcome into, into this organization, which was, of course, formed by the Illuminati, by the historical Illuminati, because Theodore Reus had um, reformed the order of the Illuminati with a guy called Leopold Engel in... In, in the 1880s in Dresden. So I can talk about what I know. I can talk about ancient Vedic tradition because I'm not a uh, religious historian. I'm just a person who has done his own work within the frames of secret societies. Okay, all right. Well, let's kind of move on to uh, the Enochian apocalypse. I mean, I just had a look at your website and your kind of most recent article where uh, you you are talking about what we are witnessing right now on the planet. 
And so in what way are we at the verge of some kind of Enochian apocalypse? I mean, how bad can this get? Are we replaying the final days of the book of Enoch again before the great flood? Now, different set of circumstances, again, a, a war between fallen angels negative uh, and positive angels or between positive extraterrestrials, negative extraterrestrials or interdimensionals. Is, is this all happening right now? Yeah, I try to live in the now. The, la the Latins used to say, ic et nunc, qui ed ora, as they say in Italian. Well, uh, the, the concept that, uh, of course, I have started to explain in my books, and uh, now we are at volume nine, we started at volume one, is that basically we're living in a reality which is far different from what the people perceive and that has a lot of occult actors uh, behind the scenes, just like the Invisible Master has shown. Like uh, we were, you were talking a moment ago about... Uh, of course, the Eastern traditions, but we know very well also what happened with the Nazi fixation with Eastern traditions and with the monstrosity that that brought them to. So the, 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 the fact that, for example, in 1910, uh, 1911, uh, Alistair Crowley published actually a book with a lot of swastikas after making a ritual in the middle of the desert in Algeria in a place in which he evoked the demon Coronzon to literally open the gates of hell, well, that is a pretty serious thing because from that moment onwards, Crowley said the apocalypse will unfold and the First World War started soon after, in 1914. Then we have the Second World War and now we are in front of the Third World War. Now, we know that uh, the, 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 the Book of Revelation doesn't talk particularly about one second of Third World War. It doesn't have that kind of timeline, but it talks about a last war. And, of course, this war that is developing in a Third World War will be the last war because with the technology that we have, even Einstein said that the future will be, uh, the next war will be fought uh, then with the stones and with the primitive means because we will no longer have a society after this uh, Third World War. So, uh, what is happening here is simply the manifestation of those prophecies which were also planted within the various traditions, the Christian tradition, of course, but also the Jewish tradition, and as well as Islam. The Abrahamic faiths, of course, have a leading role in this in developing this scenario, which uh, is going to bring us eventually to eliminate part of mankind because their intention is uh, to, to, to destroy men that now that they don't need them anymore. You see, the elite knows that now with the artificial intelligence and with the robotics, they don't necessarily need millions of people on this planet, billions of people on this planet. And so they have started the process uh, that, of course, I in 2015, when I published volume two, I said in 2020, they will lock you up with a pandemic and that will be the start. Then you will have a world war and that's it. It's all part of a scenario that, of course, we are all ready for, but that nobody wants to really accept because once it manifests in front of our eyes, it will definitely be cruel, like I said earlier. So... This is what is happening. At the same time, though, I am a believer. So I believe in the fact that we will 
be able to also have a savior, a messiah that will eventually manifest uh, all the glory of God and be able to fight the enemy. But the enemy today is winning because uh, from now till 2030, they will manifest the ultimate technology and through quantum computers, the Queen Prince of Darkness will reside in this, in this world and will be able to manifest wonders that people will be like, oh, wow. Now, with quantum computers, we'll also start the digital divide, which I've also discussed in my latest book. And the digital divide means a new form of feudalism, because me and you at the moment, we both have, you know, computers, and we can go on our side and everything. And more or less, you know, everybody has a computer. Maybe not everybody has a Mac. Maybe somebody has a PC. But when it comes to quantum computers, they cost millions of dollars, have cooling systems that are very sophisticated. And so quantum computers can go inside your cryptocurrency. They can basically go in every single password in your computer in a second, in a nanosecond. That means that those people who will own those computers will be the new castles of the future, the new you know powers of the future. And that quantum computer and that... Uh, is actually of an alien origin. It's being given to us. And they are basically becoming the intermediaries with the entities that want to enslave us, the gods that want to come back to enslave us. But we will, I hope, <laughs> I'm right, of course, and I know I'm right because I have great faith, be able to uh, stop them and to hopefully create a new reality where, whereby uh, these technologies will be put to the service of mankind rather than enslave them. But if we go by what Davos wants, what people like you and Noel Harari wants, well, you and I will be enslaved. Okay, well, uh, to what extent can we hope or expect that some, say, positive groups, I mean, you mentioned a saviour, uh, to what extent can that saviour be linked to some positive groups of extraterrestrials? There are quite a few people that have been talking about a galactic federation. For example, there's this professor from Israel, Haim Eshed, that says that the Trump administration was working with a positive organisation, a galactic federation, to kind of like um, help introduce advanced technologies to humanity. So to what extent do we have this happening in the background, that there is this process where there is, say, say white hats or positive forces within the militaries working with positive uh, organisations of extraterrestrials to prevent this kind of dire scenario that these uh, kind of like secret you, societies, fallen angels are trying to create? You can't prevent that kind of war of the worlds happening is we are beyond that capacity as humans. We can eventually side with the, the right side and hopefully avoid enslavement, but by 2030, the smart cities will start closing their grid on people, so cities will be anima no longer habitable for people who want to be free. They will start to be in positions given to people who want to continue, you know, in their uh, smart world, smart homes, smartphones, which is basically everything is smart, is controlled. 
And so the, the, when you say positive, uh, we are talking here about a messianic figure working with God and, of course, having those, uh, if you want to call them alien forces, with those angelic forces on his side that manifest in his health. But uh, that is uh, something, of course, that uh, has to do with the God and has to do with uh, his, uh, his own chosen one who will come on this plane of existence to demonstrate also that they can be able to free those people who have not sold out. Because the problem is that a lot of people will, you know, it could seem like, but they will sell themselves out for, for, for convenience and still and say, okay, I'm going to microchip myself. I'm going to put a computer brain interface because it's going to give me immediate access and make me a super genius. So, there will be people that, for convenience, will uh, give themselves up to this system. But uh, then there will be no longer uh, possible for them to free. They will be enslaved by the machine, by those entities that will manifest more and more. Because the way uh, that uh, this uh, a gradual invasion is taking place uh, is that at one point uh, they will finally show the real intention, but then we will no longer be capable of stopping them if if we are already microchipped. So one thing is definitely to, to avoid too much interaction with the AI and to not have a smart uh, home, smart anything, because or a smart car, because all this technology is being built around us to then enslave us. And of course, there will be also the intervention of alien forces, though, what you call alien forces, the moment in which we have the nuclear disasters that will come in the next few years manifesting, because we know that they have intervened in the past, of course, to maybe stop a missile launch or to, uh, no, we, we know that these UFOs intervene, uh, especially after the first nuclear experiments, they started to appear, but we, you see, there has to be a clear answer to the Fermi paradox. And the Fermi paradox, which was made by a guy who was obviously working also on nuclear stuff as Enrico Fermi, is, has not received an answer yet. But once you, you know that these people have given us everything that we have through the reverse engineering and that this is a Trojan horse, well, and that it's manifesting more and more toward their accomplishment, which is to enslave us and to basically suck our, our souls. So I hope that we can stay human, reflecting our own beliefs as human. And uh, that is my own personal belief, that there is going to be definitely a war of the words. But as humans, we have to simply have faith inside with the God and with the, the, the side that, of course, is not enslaving us. It's not taking away our humanity. But, you know, more and more you see people enslaved by simply having a, a smartphone in their hands, watching down instead of watching up. That is already a sign of slavery. Right. Well, on, on the other hand, I mean, there's a great awakening that is happening now as well. I mean, the very fact that you and I are talking mm -hmm. and a lot of people now go to YouTube or go to Twitter or, or get the feeds, they don't go to watch the mainstream news anymore. I mean, so this kind of like enslavement 
uh, on the one hand, but let me let me finish. Ninety-three percent of Italian vaccinated themselves. That is enslavement during a pandemic that was induced to enslave a population. So let's not be uh, right. Right. And and of course, I mean, in the United States, and I, I moved to an area, Tennessee, where people chose not to vaccinate. And now and, 3% has decided to take the latest vaccine. But, so in but now, but there's an awareness that has grown about the dangers of things like vaccines, of following these uh, politicians or these health experts that mandate vaccines that there's there's an awareness th that exists now that didn't exist before and, and similarly now you know you you look at um, Ukraine you look at the war with Russia a lot of people are aware that this was a manufactured war and now you're looking at Israel you're looking at the at the, the Gaza strip a lot of, and a lot of people are waking up that yeah, man, but, a manufactured are people waking up isn't this something to get hope from You're going to wake up. But like Putin said, if tomorrow morning they start another war in East Asia, which they will in Taiwan or in the Philippines, and then this confrontation becomes global, the majority of people simply can't do anything because in the past the revolutions were organized by the Illuminati, by the secret societies. If these secret societies don't give us the possibility to do the revolutions, you will not be able to change the world by shouting something in the street. Those thousands, millions of people who march the last few days are just puppets. This system is controlled. And if you want to really fight the system, well, in that case, you will have to go for civil war. It will be a war. It will be a real war. Now, there is no way of awakening people and fighting a military industrial complex with 25 companies that made millions, with Lockheed Martin, which is making 64 billion this year, You think that your awakening can save you? Good luck with that. Well, you know, I think uh, we, we the very fact that people are getting their news by going to our websites, going to our YouTube channels, that I is understand. power. I understand, Salah. But in, ten, in uh, seven years from now, when the quantum computers and the AI will be developed to a level that they will be able to enter in our computers, the moment we even say one word, Well, I think that this freedom is temporary. So if I say, just like it was temporary at the time when I could say anything I wanted on YouTube, and nowadays I can't. So I had 17 channels removed during the pandemic, 17. I could have hundreds of thousands of people. Nowadays, I'm restricted to a minimal audience on YouTube. Why? Because I've been fighting the system. Because maybe I say things that they don't want to hear. Because before the pandemic, I told them exactly what will happen and what will happen with Ukraine and what will happen with Israel and what will happen tomorrow with Taiwan. It's been written in my books. So we are developing two fronts in this new world order. The Sino-Russian front and the American uh, Western European front. And they are fighting each other. No, they're fighting each other. We already know that the Sino-Russian world order is winning because we have also a bunch of corrupt people here in Washington. So it's, uh, it's a little bit difficult uh, to believe that uh, with only divulging certain truths, we can change the world.
I always invite people, for example, to purchase physical copies of my books rather than digital, because I know that we could face digital censorship in the future, that the AI will go inside their digital Kindles and they will censor word by word. So I say to people, go back to the old ways, the printing, the, the traditional ways. Abandon anything that is relating to the AI because sooner or later they're going to find a way to censor us through that. Well, I think that's a good point and maybe we should kind of finish it there. And so if people want to buy your books, uh, uh, where, where do they go, Leah? Well, uh, they simply go on leozagami.com where they can find the latest ones or they go on Amazon and they put the Leozagami. But like I said, we are still capable of doing this today. Who knows if we will be able to do it tomorrow? So, I mean, I'm a little bit skeptic when it comes down to censorship because I've been really censored for many, many years. And so if they censor me, it means that I'm saying something right or not. I mean, of course. Uh, well, censorship is is a problem. Uh, definitely, it is a problem. Um, but um, you know, we, we can't, I think, uh, get discouraged by the AI, by the censorship. That we always find another venue, another alternative to be able to get the message out. And you're doing that now. Yes. So uh, yeah, I just encourage people to take a look at leozagami.com. And uh, thank you, Leo, for sharing your vast knowledge on secret societies and the state of the planet well i hope that we can find uh, the state of the planet a little bit better the next time we talk though i'm sorry to say that that's probably not going to be the case because we are moving towards one of the most critical times in human history and we require a lot of prayers for what is going to happen next and uh, i hope that they help us from above (laughs) that's my hope Okay, let's hope so too. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com. Thank you.